0: morning. How you guys doing? Wow, that kind of Sunday, huh? Everybody's already shooting fireworks last night, so they came in sleepy. It is the south, so anytime we can get to shoot things into the air that explode, praise the Lord. (laughs) Man, I missed you guys. It's been three weeks since I've been here in a service. I was out of town for two weeks. And then last week I was serving in the kids, which is a unique blessing. Um, But I'm so happy to be back here with you guys. I love this place. I love you guys. Um, We're going to be in the book of 2 Kings today. 2 Kings. Um, We're going to read a a story from the Old Testament, a story that you might have heard before. I would consider this, like, if you grew up in church, if you grew up in Sunday school, this is like a second-string Sunday school story. Like, we hear about Noah and David and Goliath all the time, right, 10 or 15 times. You probably heard this one once or twice in Sunday school if you grew up uh, going to church. We're going to be doing something a little different over the next few months. While you're turning there, I want to tell you this. Um, Oftentimes, we teach from a series, and when we preach here... Um, we're doing, in any church, we're doing a few different things. We're asking the Holy Spirit, what's, what's the story for the moment? Sometimes we're trying to be a little bit prophetic and we're saying, what's going on in our culture today? That we need to respond from scripture. And these are all good things and godly things that we do when we teach. But for the summer, we're kind of going to enter a season of rest in our teaching, and here's what that means. Rather than doing a specific series where we're dealing with a specific topic, for the next couple of months, till probably mid-September, we're going to be following the lectionary. A lot of you, have, some of you have heard of the lectionary, some of you might not have, but in more orthodox and more high church circles, there are, the church calendar, each week of the year has scripture readings that are determined for it. So in orthodox churches and in churches that follow the lectionary, all over the world there are thousands of Christians who are aligning around the same scripture each week. And the lectionary has an Old Testament reading, a New Testament reading, a reading from the Gospels, and a reading from the Psalms. So for the next few months, we are going to be choosing to participate with thousands and thousands of Christians globally and going to the scripture that is designated for that week and just going to the scripture without an agenda, without asking necessarily what's the word for the moment. We're just going to say, what's the scripture have for us this week? I'm really excited about this. This isn't something we're going to do forever, but I'm excited for, to take a rhythm of participating with the global church for a few months. So every week we're going to have a reading from the psalm it's from the lectionary, and we're going to teach from one of the lectionary readings. If you just go and Google lectionary, you can actually read in advance, and you could participate with all of the scripture readings each Sunday. I mean, you can see in advance the, the scriptures that we'll be selecting from. So that's why we're reading the story of Naaman in Second Kings today, because this is the first week of our lectionary series, and this is the Old Testament reading for the week. So Second Kings chapter 5, we're going to start reading in verse 1. It says this, Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, I don't know how to say that. You just make it up as you go along. The rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel. Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to gather around your word to worship together and to be formed. We ask that you would speak today. Anything that's from me, that's my opinions or thoughts, would be forgotten. Your word, your truth for today would be remembered. The name of Jesus is the only name we're here about today. We love you. Amen. So this section of the sermon is going to be interactive. Is that all right? All right. That was a bad start. This sermon of the section is going to be interactive. Is that all right? Cool. All right. First off, uh, where are the dog people at? Dog people, all right, God's chosen few, yes, yes, absolutely. The elect, maybe, um, the ones deemed righteous by the Lord. Um, I've got a whole list of cat jokes that I worked up, just like how cat and demon are the same thing in Greek, it's really hard to tell them apart, and how God didn't make cats, but he made them to test us. Um, <laughs> but we have a cat now, and my son loves the cat. Um, and I don't, but I love my son. Um, So we have it. Just for the record, the cat recently figured out how to get in the cabinets of our house by herself like she's hunting us. Okay, like she's hiding in a cabinet waiting for us to walk by so she can like... The only difference between this cat and a tiger is size. I just want to point that out, right? If she were 200 pounds heavier, we would be a mouse and she would hunt us. She doesn't love us. She just tolerates our presence. Um, My dogs, however, love us. My dogs might be dumb but my dogs are loyal and they love us, or at least we imagine that they love us. We personify them. Is that a? Did I did I press a button there? We personify them as loving. What we call it love? It's all right. I love dogs. I want to ask you a question, and this is a weird question. I acknowledge that, um, but I'm gonna just roll with me. All right. So I need actual answers. Like I said, this is interactive. Um, what do you think the primary differences between a dog? and a person are now ignore the obvious obviously fur you know teeth paws that type of thing really we're asking what's the difference between an animal and a human but we all know and love dogs if we love jesus that is um so i'm just kidding you can love cats god will forgive you of that um Like I said, I've got a whole list of jokes. I can tell some people are getting offended, so I'm going to cut off the list now. We're not going to go any farther with that. God still loves you if you love cats. But what's the difference between a person and and an animal? Shout it out. Give me something. Person and a dog. We're made in the image of God. That is an excellent, excellent answer. That is perfect we have the image of God in us that's the difference that's the primary difference in fact there's an argument for design that talks about how we can know that there is a God it's one of the many arguments that defends the existence of God and it says we we see a designer's fingerprints over everything we see physical even similarities between humans and animals but there's something core that's different from humans and animals and in scripture we call that the image of God or the imago Dei so let's let's expand the question How do we see the image of God? What can we see in the difference between a person and an animal that tells us humans are made in the image of God? Animals aren't. Soul, conscience, that's interesting. Will, free will, emotions, that's very good. Anything else? Kind of a tough question, isn't it? And just for the record... It is worth thinking about for all of us, what actually is the image of God in us? What actually is the thing that shows us we were made in the image of God? How can we look at the world around us and say, no, we're different? Um, God has given us control. God has given us the ability to participate, to co-create with him in the world. But what is that? We might say, were you going to say something? Dominion, absolutely. That's a great one because we see that animals exist in the world. But in Genesis, humans were created to steward the world. Animals were in the garden, but humans garden the garden. They, particip- they, they don't just exist in the world and live or die in the world, but we co-create the world. We can change the world with God. Yeah, that's great. We might say um, language. Language would be a difference. And I know that, you know, dogs can communicate. My dog can sit by the food and wine and tell me that she's hungry, but she can't, like, ask for a French croissant with a orange demi-glaze, right? My dog can communicate something, but she doesn't have language to communicate nuance. There's a big difference. There's a theologian and philosopher. His name's G.K. Chesterton. He died probably 100 years ago. But he said, we look at animals, we look at the world around us, and we see similarities. We see that that an octopus can use tools. We see that dolphins have, maybe some scientists think they have names for one another. We see that birds build nests, just like people build houses. He says it shouldn't surprise us that a bird builds a nest. It should surprise us if a bird built a nest with Greek columns. Because humans do things for more than utility. Humans do things because they're beautiful. Humans do things because they're good. Humans do things because we want to. Now, I want to offer this morning that there are a lot of differences between animals and people, and we could spend a lot of time talking about this, but one of the primary differences, one of the differences that we need to acknowledge today is that animals live with a survival instinct. Humans have a conscience might be one way that we would say that. Humans have sentience, full sentience might be another way. Humans are moral agents might be another way that we would say that. Animals live with a survival instinct. In other words, my dog fetches, because for generations, bred into her is the instinct to go get something and bring it back. Animals live on, because of this survival instinct, they live in a pleasure-pain dynamic. Their instincts tell them that things that hurt are bad, and things that don't hurt are good. And unless there is an instinct that's driven in there, the animal does what doesn't hurt unless it's trained or taught to do something else. And only, it's only trainable if it has an instinct to be trainable. Animals live on instincts. That's why humans invented CrossFit, animals didn't. Because it hurts, it's not fun. Shout out to Micah, <laughs> big CrossFit guy. Um, he's also way stronger than me, and I don't want to get in a fight with him. Um, that's why my dog will eat one spicy pepper, but humans will do the blazing challenge at Buffalo Wild Wings right we have the ability to look at something that hurts but maybe see value in it we have the ability to see nuance we have the ability to do something even if it's counterintuitive even if it seems painful or it seems negative we have the ability to choose something because we want that thing not just based on some innate desire we're not instinctual creatures we have the ability to make informed decisions and to embrace nuance. Nuance is a really important word for our culture today, just for the record. I want to offer this morning that one of the effects of sin, brokenness, sin and the effects of sin, which would be brokenness, shame, the pain and suffering that we see in the world around us, the effects that go beyond our individual actions but have hurt the world around us, one one of the effects is that we are dehumanized. And that we are pushed into self-preservation instincts. That we wind up operating in a pleasure-pain cycle rather than embracing nuance. That shame, sometimes sin, brokenness, removes some of the image of God in us and causes us to operate in defensiveness, seeing enemies, refusing to do hard or difficult things, taking the easy way out. Now, at the risk of kicking a hornet's nest, one of the ways that we've seen this in our culture over the last 10 years, but exemplified recently, is in the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Now, I say that not to make a political point this morning, but to say that we as a culture are deeply divided, and even if I say that word, a heaviness hits the room, because we can all feel the enemy lines that have been drawn in our culture. Now, I say this as somebody who I am pro-life, pro-life womb to tomb. I believe that, but I also believe that whenever we, as people who follow Jesus, and this isn't necessarily part of the sermon, but it's a sidebar that I think we need to take, that whenever we, as people made in the image of God, start calling people enemies, start using phrases like barbaric, and how could you, and how dare you, instead of person made in the image of God, loved by God, died for by Jesus, who needs to know how, mu- how loved they are. Whenever we choose to see someone as an enemy, rather than someone who needs to be empathized with, then we're, we're losing part of our, the image of God that we, we were created in. Because we become defensive. We begin to protect self. We begin to draw lines in the sand that separate us from them, rather than seeing the cross as, as what Ephesians called the unifier that says we are all broken and we all need forgiveness and there is a better way. There's a better way. Now, I realize that that was like kicking a hornet's nest. (laughs) And I want to say this. If that's something you would want to talk about, this is a complicated issue. Everybody in our culture, we want to oversimplify things and we want to say it is obviously this, get mad at anybody who disagrees with you. If you want to talk about this, I believe that there are biblical answers. Like I said, I'm personally pro-life, womb to tomb. I would love to engage in this conversation with you. Come talk about it. Let's get coffee. Let's dive into it. But for the sake of the sermon this morning, we're going to see the hornet's nest, acknowledge that it's a hornet's nest, and we're going to set it over here. <laughs> All right? Because this is a, adjacent to where we're going this morning, but it's not where we're going this morning. Does that sound good? We agree with that? All right, last interactive piece of the sermon. Does that sound good? Perfect. All right, you can still interact with them. It's fine. So here's what's going on in this story with Naaman. Naaman is a mighty warrior. He is an, he's a guy with a lot of honor in his culture, which just knowing a lot of the culture of that day, what that means is that he is someone who was probably born into a family with honor, because this was a culture in which the family you come from really established your place in the world. If he's a commander, then he's probably got influence in his history. Also, the story specifically says that he has established himself as a standout from the world around him, from the people around him. He is a mighty warrior. He has favor with the king. He has done a lot of really impressive things. He's the type of guy that everywhere he goes, people notice and people look at him. He's well-respected and he's well-loved, even by the king of his nation. But there's something else going on in the story. Naaman has leprosy. Now, leprosy is a skin disease that was usually fatal, that led to deformation, that was painful, and that was shameful. At this time in culture, and in fact in parts of our world today, people who suffer with leprosy were actually restricted from the rest of society. They were often made to live in what were called leper colonies because of the fear of contagion. So they would live bandaged, wounded, bleeding, off to the side of culture with people trying not to touch them while they delivered them food. So Naaman is a guy with honor, but he's a guy who has a disease that is likely going to start costing him fingers, And it will likely affect his face. People would often lose noses and ears and the extremities of their body as a result of this disease. In other words, he's a person who has a lot of honor and respect, but he's got a disease that is deeply equated with shame, restriction, and ostracization. And on top of that, in this culture, oftentimes, when somebody got sick, it wasn't exclusive but oftentimes when somebody got sick, the assumption was, wasn't they got sick, the assumption was they made the wrong God angry. Oftentimes diseases were viewed as punishment for something, and in many other religions the gods were confusing, and they were hard to get along with, and they were complicated, so you could step cross the wrong line or offer the wrong sacrifice, and your God would be angry at you. And... Naaman is living with a shameful disease, a culturally shameful disease, that's probably assumed that he got this disease in some sort of shameful way. So we see in Naaman a dichotomy. One of the things that scripture does is it asks us to resist the urge to see people in extremes. Oftentimes when we look at our history, oftentimes the way other religions, other belief systems, even our modern history, the way we look at our heroes is we like to see people as completely good or completely evil. The Bible resists that. In the Bible, the heroes always have a little villain in them. And the villains always do very human and honorable things. The Bible almost always resists the urge for us to categorize people into one camp or the other. It wants us to see ourselves and everybody in the story. That's one of the primary differences. God is sometimes mysterious, but he's always good. People are not. People are complicated. So one of the temptations is to read this story, and this is how I grew up reading this story, is to read the story as if Naaman is this like, arrogant guy. He's very arrogant. He's... he's coming to Israel, and he's got an army, he's got chariots with him, he's coming under a banner of peace, he's not there, he doesn't need those for defense, but Naaman rolls heavy up to Elisha's house, he wants Elisha to come out and honor him, but Elisha won't do it, and he gets angry that Elisha won't honor him, won't acknowledge his honor and his power, he came with all of these chariots, which is just a flex, he didn't need them, he came with all of these chariots, and then when Elisha says, go bathe in the river and you'll get healed, he says, no, I'm not going to bathe in your Israelite dirty rivers, I would bathe in my own river, but there's no way I would do that. And we see Naaman as this very arrogant person. And pride is certainly part of the story, but something that we know from psychology and from our own lived experience is that pride is not always, but is oftentimes, sleight of hand. It's oftentimes linked to shame. Usually, when we're trying to show something to people, it's because we don't want them to see something else. Usually when we're trying to make ourselves look better, we're trying to get people's eyes on what we want them to see so we don't notice what we don't want them to see. See, I think Naaman's a little bit more complex. Maybe Naaman came to Elisha's house proving that he still has honor even though he's got this shameful disease. Maybe he came with all of these chariots because he needed everyone to know that he hadn't lost his dignity even though he was afflicted with a disease that was costing him his dignity. Maybe he wanted to show that people still respect him. Maybe he was afraid that he was losing respect when he comes to Elisha's house. And maybe when Elisha doesn't even come outside, it feels like a blow to his dignity. So he gets angry because oftentimes when we react in anger, it's actually because someone poked the thing that was tender, (laughs) the thing that hurts. Whether they did something wrong or not, our reaction is because they found the wound. But the point of the story where it seems to seal the deal with Naaman, he seems to be obviously prideful, is when Elisha says, just go bathe in the river. Seven times. Now, you might be familiar with the fact that seven was an important number in that day. It often meant the number of perfection, number of healing, number of the Lord, that type of thing. Numbers were very important in this culture. Go bathe seven times. Naaman would have probably understood that the number was significant. It was acknowledging the God of Israel over his other gods. So he would go dunk seven times instead of the other gods' number or something like that. But Naaman says, no, I'm not going to bathe in your river. I'm not going to do that. My nation's rivers are clean, your rivers are dirty. It seems arrogant. It seems like he doesn't want to lower himself to dunk in a muddy river. Until you consider what leprosy was. It was a disease of open wounds. If you had open wounds that were often getting infected and rarely healing, and somebody asked you to go bathe in one of the retention ponds behind Lowe's off 385, to get healed, would you do it? Because the culture tells us that this was a filthy river. You can imagine even in early U.S. history that we would pump sewage into rivers. This is where, where waste was dumped. This, is, this was not a good place to bathe. Naaman has open water wounds all over his body and his disease tells him that the wounds will get worse and that that's what's going to cost him his face, that's what's going to cost him his body that's what's ultimately going to cost him his life and Elisha says if you want to get healed you have to take off all of the coverings that are hiding the wounds you have to get into a river that will probably cause infection and you have to bathe in it seven times and then you will find healing Oh that's remarkable. Now we have to be careful here because we have a tendency to read the Old Testament and to try to turn it into math equations for blessing or for healing. So we'll read the story of like Joshua marching around the city 7 times and we'll say, "All right, I need a raise, so I'm going to pray around my boss's office 7 times." But your boss is not the Philistines. <laughs> They're not your enemy. That's not how it works, all right? God did not create a world full of puzzles that we have to solve to unlock some sort of blessing. That's important. God's not trying to trick us. This is not national treasure. He's trying for, for relationship with us. He wants relationship with us. He wants to know us and be known by us. So he's not hiding things all around the world. But what we can see in the Old Testament often is principles. Principles of faith. Principles of trust. And I think we see an important principle in this story. Is that God restores the Imago Dei. He restores our humanity. He restores the image of God in us. And oftentimes, finding that healing means doing the thing that feels the most dangerous and the most risky. It means doing the thing that feels the most vulnerable and the most counterintuitive that God actually calls us back into our humanity by calling us to do something that our instincts tell us would be harmful. See, if you've got a big secret sin, confession feels dangerous. Confession feels like the absolute opposite thing that you want to do. Your instincts tell you to hide it. They tell you to cover it up. They tell you to save face and not let anybody to see it. But God says if you want it to be healed, you have to be vulnerable. You have to acknowledge that thing, so confess it. If you struggle deeply with materialism and greed, if you 're continually looking at your possessions and evaluating yourself and the people around you based on your possessions, then generosity and I mean generosity to the point that it hurts like we see in scripture, is going to feel like the absolute opposite thing from what you should do it 's going to go against every instinct, but when we do that, when we live in generosity, we see the beauty of the life God has created for us. We see the beauty of the life god 's called us to if you 're dealing with bitterness and forgiveness and you've got relationships that won't mend because those people have hurt you and you're clinging to that bitterness, forgiving them feels like vulnerability. It feels like the absolute opposite thing of what you should do. But it's the thing that sets us free from bitterness because God calls us back into our humanity. We were created to walk with God, to know him, in a world where we co-create with him, in a garden where we had work to do in close relationship with him. And Jesus on the cross takes the punishment, the penalty, the separation, the ransom. He takes all of that on the cross so that we can then be restored to a version of the life we were created for. We can see as a window what we were created to as we trust that the restoration is coming in the end and that everything will be made right. But God doesn't ask us to just keep living in and tolerate the shackles of sin on our life, he invites us into healing. The problem is the healing means being vulnerable. The healing often means going against those self-preservation instincts and trusting that I'm not an animal, that I have a protector, that I have a God who is my defender, that I have a God who is preserving me so I can trust him with this wound, with this thing that I don't want to let go of. We are called back into our humanity. This is one of the results of the work of the cross. So, the question for us all this morning is is simple What's the thing that you know is hurting, that you know what God would ask you to do, but you just don't want to do it because it feels too risky? It feels too dangerous. Is it confession? Is it forgiveness? Is it trusting God with a new career or a new job? Maybe it's trusting that he's called you into ministry, or he's called you to be a missionary, or he's called you to do something that you never planned for your life. Maybe it's laying down a dream or something that you always thought was where your life was going to go, trusting that he, he has something better. Just so you know, God, if God asks you to lay down a dream or a, a path of life that you've always seen, he's not just testing to see how loyal you are. He has something better for you. He's calling you into healing. He's calling you into something better. He's saying, this thing, you can only dream part of it. I can dream something better. So if you'll let this go, I have something better for you. And I hope you know, because when we talk about healing, when we talk about wholeness, when we talk about forgiveness, and when we talk about doing the hard thing to have some sort of healing or restoration, sometimes it can feel like we're short-selling sin. But I want you to see that the life, the life of a follower of Jesus is a very hard life life. It is a difficult life. I'm not trying to sell you a used car here. There's not something that's going to come back and bite you in the end. It's a difficult life, but it's a life that leads to healing. It's a life that leads to something better. It's a life in which we confront the wounds in our life, and we confess the wounds in our life so that we can actively participate in the healing of our wounds through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the church community, maybe through counseling or through medicine. But we acknowledge the wounds so we can find the healing. And we push into it. This is the life God's called us to. I want you to know this is the last thing I'll say, and then we'll close in worship, but I want you to know, I know how hard that is. And Jen and I have made decisions. I could I could tell you stories about times where we knew, we knew from wise counsel, we knew from mentors, we knew from prayer, we knew it in our hearts and from the people that we love and trust that God was calling us to do something. But we had other people that we love and trust that were saying, that doesn't make any sense. That's going to cost you your family, you're going to ruin your finances, you're going to, How could you you take your son to that place? I can tell you how hard it is. But I can tell you that when you trust the way of Jesus, that he invites you into healing, that he invites you into something better. When you're willing to do, it seems counterintuitive. It feels like the opposite of what you should do. But when you trust the Holy Spirit into where he's leading, it will always wind up for your good, for his glory, and for the good of the world. And if you need a testimony of that, come find me. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. God, I thank you that you have a life that is better for us than easy, better for us than simple. I thank you that you have a life that is for our good, but you are not offering us just easy answers. I thank you that you invite us into healing and that you are willing to do the work with us to find healing. Now, God, for anyone in this room who has something in their mind, something in their heart, something in their life, that they are struggling to surrender. that they don't want to trust you in. It feels counterintuitive. God, I ask that you would show them, just right now, show them a window of what you're inviting them into, of what healing could look like, so that they have the courage to trust you in the process, to trust you in the difficulty. We love you, Jesus. And we thank you for both dogs and cats. Amen.